The Colonel and the King by Alana Nash. They fitted together perfectly, the raw musical genius and the cunning promoter. And as Elvis slid deeper into weirdness and drugs, Tom Parker's power only grew. On the sweltering evening of August 15, 1977, Elvis Presley slipped out of his blue silk lounging pyjamas. With the help of his cousin, Billy Smith, he put on a black tracksuit, a white silk shirt and black patent leather boots, unzipped due to the puffy build-up of fluid in his ankles. Around 10.30, after a night of motorcycle riding with his girlfriend Ginger Olden, the singer stuffed two .45 calibre automatic pistols in the waistband of his tracksuit. Then he donned his custom-made chrome sunglasses and slid behind the wheel of his Stutz car. With Alden Smith and entourage member Charlie Hodge in tow, Elvis drove to the surgery of his dentist in East Memphis. A few of Presley's teeth needed fixing, and he wanted to tend to them before he left the following night for Portland, Maine, the first day of a 12-day tour. When the group returned to Graceland near midnight, Elvis and Ginger went upstairs, and Smith retired to his caravan on the property. Sometime around 2am, Elvis spoke with Larry Geller, perhaps his closest friend, and Geller recalled that Elvis was in a very good mood, looking forward to the tour, making plans for the future. About 4am, Elvis felt energetic enough for a racquetball game and called Billy and his wife Jo to join him and Ginger. As they went out to Elvis's private court, light rain began to fall. Ain't no problem, I'll take care of it, Elvis said, and put out his hands as if to stop it. Miraculously, Smith remembered, the rain stopped. See, I told you, Elvis said, if you've got a little faith, you can stop the rain. Despite his sudden burst of energy, Elvis was exhausted from several days of a jelly diet, the latest in a series of desperate attempts to trim down enough to fit into his stage costumes. He tired quickly on the court, and the couples resorted to fooling around instead of concentrating on their games, mostly swatting each other with the ball but they quit when Elvis misjudged a serve and hit himself hard in the shin with his racket. Upstairs in the house, Smith washed and dried his cousin's hair. As they talked, Elvis obsessed about a new book that detailed his physical deterioration, titled Elvis, What Happened? The book disclosed just how dependent on drugs, mostly amphetamines and sedatives, the king had become. Elvis fumed that he'd bring the author's his former bodyguards Red West, Sunny West and Dave Hebler to Graceland, where he'd kill them himself and dispose of their bodies. He couldn't understand how they could have betrayed him. Then his mood dimmed and he rehearsed a speech he planned to give from the stage if his fans, shocked to learn their idol spent about $1.5 a year on his prescription drug habit, booed him in concert. They've never beat me before, he said, and they won't beat me now. Billy knew what he meant, even if I have to get up there and admit to everything. Numb and weary, Elvis began to cry. It's okay, Billy soothed. It's going to be all right. As Smith went out the door, Elvis turned to him and said, Billy, son, this is going to be my best tour ever. At 7.45am, the singer downed four or five sleeping pills, his second such dose in a couple of hours. Elvis had long been plagued by sleep troubles, beginning when he was a child and escalating with his drug-taking and rock star hours. 
a third dose would soon follow. He'd eaten no solid food since the day before. Sometime around 8am, Elvis climbed into bed with Ginger. The Memphis beauty queen, then in her early 20s, recalled that she woke to find her ageing boyfriend too keyed up to sleep, preoccupied with the tour. Precious, Elvis said, I'm going to go to the bathroom and read for a while. Ginger stirred. Okay, she said, but don't fall asleep. Don't worry, I won't, he said. Behind the bathroom door, Elvis picked up The Scientific Search for the Face of Jesus, a book about the Shroud of Turin, and waited for his pharmaceutical escort to slumber. As Elvis's day was ending in Memphis, Colonel Tom Parker's was already in full swing in Portland. Parker had managed Elvis's career since the mid-1950s, negotiating lucrative record contracts with RCA and film deals with the Hollywood studios. Gradually, though, Parker, an illegal Dutch immigrant and one-time carnival worker, had taken over nearly every aspect of the star's life. Parker had handled all the details of Elvis's wedding ceremony to Priscilla Boileau on May 1, 1967. He tightly monitored the star's circle of friends and even tried to dictate what books his client could read. From time to time, Elvis spouted off about the colonel's incessant interference. But when Parker put his foot down, Elvis became docile again. The colonel told Elvis, You've got to behave yourself. You can only go so far, said Larry Geller. Songwriter Jerry Lieber, who wrote many hits for Elvis, saw that the singer worshipped Parker as a maker and saviour, but despised him because he was never able to take control of his own life. Now, on the eve of the tour... Parker was holed up in a Sheraton hotel in Portland, riding herd on his men. One member of the team, Lamar Fike, who had flown in from Los Angeles on the red-eye flight, went immediately to work setting up security and arranging hotel rooms for the band and crew. Just before midday on August 16, Billy Smith walked into Graceland and spoke to Entourage member Al Strada, who was parking Elvis's wardrobe cases. Smith asked if anyone had seen the boss yet. Al said no, Elvis wasn't to be woken until 4pm. Billy wondered if one of the Stanleys, Elvis's stepbrothers, had checked on him. Billy started upstairs himself, but stopped. No, he thought. If they ain't heard from him, God, let him rest. He needs it. At 10.20 in the afternoon, Ginger turned over in Elvis's huge bed and found it empty. Had he never come back to sleep? She noticed that his reading light was still on. She knocked on the bathroom door. Elvis, honey? There was no response. She turned the knob and went inside. Elvis was slumped on the floor. He was on his knees, his hands beneath his face, in a near-praying posture. Inexplicably, he had somehow fallen into this grotesque position. But why hadn't he answered her? Ginger called out again. Elvis? He lay so unnaturally still. Ginger bent down to touch him. He was cold, his swollen face buried in the red shag carpet, blood dotting his nostrils. His skin was mottled purple-black. Not wanting to believe the worst, Ginger pressed the intercom, which rang the kitchen. Soon she was speaking to Al Strada. Al, I need you, Ginger said. Elvis has fainted. Strada rushed upstairs, took one look, and called down for Joe Esposito, one of Elvis's aides. Esposito bounded up the stairs and turned the body onto its side. He knew the truth. 
but he still called for an ambulance. Joe then phoned Dr Nick, Dr George Nicopoulos, Elvis's primary doctor, with the news that Elvis had suffered a heart attack. As the ambulance screamed up the driveway, the upstairs filled with people. Charlie Hodge crying and begging Elvis not to die. Elvis's father, Vernon, collapsing on the floor. Elvis's daughter, nine-year-old Lisa Marie, who was visiting from California, peering wide-eyed into the scene. What happened to him, asked one of the paramedics, Ulysses Jones. Al Strada blurted out the truth. We think he OD'd. At Baptist Memorial Hospital, the emergency team did its best, but no measure, whether frantic or heroic, could save Graceland's master. Finally, Dr Nick, his face orchid white, entered the waiting room where Esposito sat with Hodge, Strada, Smith and David Stanley. He's gone, said the doctor, whom the Tennessee Board of Medical Examiners later convicted of prescribing some 12,000 drugs for Elvis over a 20-month period. He's no longer here. As the news sank in, the men cried shamelessly and held on to each other for support. Elvis Presley was dead at the age of 42. From the hospital, Joe Esposito called the colonel in Maine. I have something terrible to tell you, Joe began, his voice wavering. Elvis is dead. 30 seconds, maybe more passed before Parker spoke. Okay, Joe, the manager finally said, his voice flat, devoid of emotion. We'll be there as soon as we can. Esposito sensed that beneath the calm, the colonel was shaken. Like me, Joe later wrote, he would do whatever had to be done, cancel the tour and let everyone know it was all over. Within minutes, the colonel's men were summoned to his hotel room. I went in, recalled Lamar Fike, and he was sitting on the side of the bed hanging up the phone. Everybody was looking down at the floor. I said, what the hell is going on here? Colonel got up and walked over to me. He said, Lamar, you need to go to Memphis and meet with Vernon. Elvis is dead. Fike was shattered, but hardly surprised. For months now, the most celebrated performer in the world had barely been able to find his way to the microphone. At a concert in Baltimore, Elvis had left the stage for 30 minutes. At the finale, Variety wrote, there was no ovation and patrons exited shaking their heads and speculating on what was wrong with him. Elvis himself had a good idea. Not long before, he'd invited the songwriter Ben Wiseman to his suite in Las Vegas. His face puffy, Elvis sat down at the piano. Ben, he said, there's a song I love, softly as I leave you. But it's not about a man leaving a lady. It's about a man who's going to die. The colonel had seen irrefutable evidence of Elvis's condition as late as May 21, 1977, in Louisville. Larry Geller was in the anteroom of Elvis's hotel suite, waiting for Dr Nick to finish administering the drugs that would transform Elvis from a sick, lethargic man to an energised performer. Suddenly, Geller heard a loud knock at the door. He answered it to find an angry Tom Parker leaning on his cane. Geller was shocked. He had never known Parker to come to Elvis's private room while the singer was on tour. Where is he? the colonel demanded. Geller said he would let Elvis know he was there. No, I'm going in, the colonel said curtly, brushing past Geller. Parker opened the door to a devastating sight. Elvis, semi-conscious and moaning, 
with Dr Nick working frantically to revive him. At first, Geller's heart sank. Then he felt relieved. Finally, the Colonel was seeing Elvis at his worst. The star had never been so out of it, so sick. Surely now the Colonel would pull him off the road, get him help. Instead, Parker thundered out of the room. You listen to me, he shouted at Geller, stabbing the air with his cane. The only thing that's important is that he's on that stage tonight. Geller was horrified. How could the Colonel be so callous? Which is pretty much what Lamar Fike was wondering now, on August 16, after the Colonel had so coldly delivered the news of Elvis's death. I said to him, that's it, recalled Fike. Colonel said, yep, that's it. I said, well, it took you a while, but you finally ran him into the ground, didn't you? Parker challenged him. What did you say? Fike was resolute. You heard what I said. He couldn't run any more. While Elvis's most devoted fans began a pilgrimage to Memphis from all points of the globe, the Colonel booked a flight, not to Tennessee, but to New York. There he met with RCA, for whom his client had sold more tapes and records than any other performer in history. Rightly expecting that every shop in the country would sell out of Presley product within 24 hours, Parker put the squeeze on RCA to engage the major record-pressing plants at premium prices, shoving other orders aside, to keep a rich river of Elvis records churning. Next, Parker met with a merchandiser, cutting a deal for Elvis tie-ins. Only then did he travel to Memphis for Elvis's funeral service on August 18, with the tabloid's helicopters circling overhead and the droning screech of cicadas hanging heavy in the humid air. Tom Parker, the man who brought Elvis to the masses, first learnt the art of the hustle in his native Breda, Holland. Born Andreas Cornelis van Kuyk in 1909, the boy known as Dries developed a fascination with fairs and circuses. By the age of nine, he had become a carnival worker, a circus water boy, an animal caretaker, and, when he was a little older, a spruker. After dropping out of school in the fifth grade, Dries helped his father with his work stabling horses. It didn't last. Restless, the boy took jobs on ships in the harbour of Rotterdam and by 1927 travelled to Hoboken, New Jersey, where he lived with a Dutch family. He soon began a peripatetic life, knocking around the United States before returning to Breda. One day in May 1929, he failed to show up for his deckhand job. Weeks went by before his family received a mysterious letter saying he'd gone away but giving no details of his whereabouts. He signed his subsequent notes, Andre or Thomas Parker. He just changed identity, said his sister Marie. He wanted to remain unknown. Just where was Dries and who in the world was Tom Parker? Three decades would pass before the family learnt the answer. By then, Parker had joined the United States Army gone AWOL, been hospitalised for psychological disturbances, received a discharge and emerged anew as an ambitious talent agent with the honorary title of Colonel. For a while, Parker managed the popular crooner Eddie Arnold. But when Arnold summarily fired him in 1953, Parker, desperate for a major new client, was soon taking note of a young and hip Elvis Presley. A handful of men claim credit for telling the colonel about the combustible hillbilly cat 
who in late 1954 was performing on the Louisiana Hayride radio program. It's likely that Elvis's appearances there and in tours of Texas made such a stir that Parker began hearing about him from both Texarkana DJ Ernest Hackworth and Gabe Tucker, a former Eddie Arnold band member. What really turned Parker's head, though, was a report from his old friend and crony, Oscar Davis. Shortly after catching one of Elvis's first recordings, Blue Moon of Kentucky, on the radio, Davis went to see the teenage Elvis perform at a Memphis dive. It was packed with screaming women. Davis told Parker one afternoon, I saw the darndest act you ever imagined, this kid who does this twisting around and so forth. The colonel's eyes popped open. Where was he? Who is he? Almost immediately, Parker turned up at a Presley show in Texarkana. Bob Neal, who had been booking Elvis in the region, certainly wanted to work something out with Parker, hoping this razzle-dazzle character, as he called the colonel, would put Elvis on package tours around the country. On January 15, 1955, Parker travelled to Shreveport to watch Elvis, who was decked out in a rust-coloured suit, a black dotted purple tie and pink socks, perform three songs for the Hayride audience. Afterwards, Parker had a meeting with Neil and arranged to handle Elvis's bookings. Still, it wasn't until Elvis's appearance in May before 14,000 fans in Jacksonville, Florida, that Parker realised what he had. Girls, I'll see you all backstage, Elvis joked at the end of the show, and about half the crowd soon broke through the police barricade, a throng following him into the changing room, trying to tear off his clothes. Parker now understood that Elvis's popularity could go beyond anything he'd ever seen. Enlisting the help of RCA Victor and the William Morris Agency, Parker took no more than a year to make Elvis the biggest selling artist in the music business. The Colonel accepted a $62,000 advance from a Beverly Hills merchandiser to turn Elvis into a brand name, licensing 78 different articles, from Elvis charm bracelets and lipstick in hound dog orange to scarves, dolls and glow-in-the-dark busts. That entrepreneurial vision raked in some $34 million, apart from what fans spent on concerts and records. No artist had exploded on the scene with the volcanic impact of Elvis Presley in 1956. No longer just a mere musical phenomenon, he was fast becoming a pop culture extravaganza. In time, he would become perhaps the most influential cultural figure of the 20th century. Starting in January 1956, Elvis appeared for four consecutive weeks on CBS TV's stage show, a popular Saturday night vaudeville program, debuting his first RCA single, Heartbreak Hotel, with a bump-and-grind musical backing. Heartbreak Hotel quickly sold more than a million copies, continuing to sell at a rate of 70,000 copies a week. And after 82% of all American television sets were tuned into The Ed Sullivan Show on September 9, 1956, the first night of Elvis's three guest shots, the Colonel was able to boast that since he'd come on board, the cost of an Elvis appearance had skyrocketed. Once paid $450 a night, Elvis earned $77,000 for his three appearances on Sullivan, making him one of the highest paid performers on TV. Eventually, Elvis would gross over $3.5 million on a 1977 concert tour. And then there was Hollywood. Parker had his sights on the big screen, 
not just to maximise Elvis's talents or to make him rich and famous beyond anyone's boldest imagining, but to make himself powerful. After booking Elvis into Paramount-controlled venues in Florida and up the US East Coast, where the singer packed every one he played, the Colonel entered into preliminary agreements with Paramount Studios, delivering Elvis for a screen test in March 1956. Elvis performed two dramatic scenes from The Rainmaker, which producer Hal Wallace was about to make with Burt Lancaster and Catherine Hepburn. For a musical number, Elvis lip-synced his new single, Blue Suede Shoes, while strumming a prop guitar. When RCA executives viewed the test in New York, they were stunned. Presley displayed a surprisingly natural acting ability, and in the serious love scene, a directness that suggested the work of James Dean or Marlon Brando. My God, we were agog. It was the talk of the place, said one executive. Elvis's first film, Love Me Tender, opened in New York on November 15, 1956. Nearly 2,000 fans of all ages lined up, the queue snaking for blocks. The theatre manager sent the film studio's publicity department an ecstatic telegram. Spread the news that we have a most sensational attraction. Parker, who had staged the gathering as a publicity stunt, had his own advice for cinema operators. Empty the house after every showing. With the film's commercial success, it made back its cost within a week. Parker sweetened the deal for Elvis's second film, Loving You. They were a team. Presley the talent, and Parker through ingenuity, converting that talent into one of the most amazing careers in the history of show business. Not all was well with Elvis, however. The 21-year-old star had begun telling reporters that the hysteria at his concerts makes me want to cry. Everything had got so big, so fast, and now the army was making noises about drafting him. On Easter Sunday, 1957, when he should have been enjoying his new mansion, Graceland, Elvis told his minister, the Reverend James Hamill, I am the most miserable young man you have ever seen. But the colonel was all business. Consumed with manipulating Elvis's military service for the greatest public relations good, in mid-1956, Parker had begun dictating a series of letters to the Pentagon. When the induction notice came through in late 1957, the deal was set. A two-year tour of duty and a 60-day deferment to allow Presley to make the film King Creole, following Jailhouse Rock. Parker promised Elvis, If you go into the army, stay a good boy, and do nothing to embarrass your country, I'll see to it that you'll come back a bigger star than when you left. So on March 24, 1958, the world's best-known recruit reported to the Memphis Draft Board. Elvis wore a wan smile and a loud plaid sports jacket. He kissed his mother, hugged his father, and gazed fondly at his 1958 Cadillac. Goodbye, you long black SOB, he said, drawing laughs from his fellow soldiers. Then he boarded the bus, leaving behind everything he'd ever known. At Fort Hood, near Killeen, Texas, Elvis had a haunting dream. When he came out of the army, everything was gone. No songs on the charts, no fans in the audience. Elvis soon asked his friend, Eddie Fidal, a former DJ who opened his Waco home to him, to help him get some medication, uppers to ease him through the day, and downers to let him sleep. It was easy. My father knew all the doctors in town, said Fidal's daughter, Janice. 
Elvis had long pilfered diet pills from his mother, Gladys. When Gladys's health began declining, a doctor diagnosed hepatitis, and she died in August 1958, aged 46, Elvis was inconsolable. Feeling isolated and anxious, he was soon developing a serious prescription drug habit, aided by doctors and friends over the years. After Elvis sailed for Germany, the colonel wrote him long chatty letters designed to fill him in on his efforts to keep your name hot over here and to try to boost the singer's spirits. Parker reported spectacular results. His hard work, he wrote, combined with his diverse promotions, some $4.6 million from souvenirs alone, would bring in more revenue for 1958 than the year before, even though Elvis was in military service. Parker was also finalising lucrative new movie deals with Paramount and 20th Century Fox Studios. When Sergeant Elvis Presley left Fort Dix on March 3, 1960, there was fanfare usually reserved for returning war heroes. The band played Old Lang Syne as he walked to a limo, beaming for the flashbulbs. Startlingly handsome, his features lean and chiselled, Elvis chatted with a few teenage fans who broke through the crowd. Go get him, Elvis! someone yelled. In truth, the nervous flyer was somewhat sedated, having spent most of the previous night with a new girlfriend, Priscilla. The sanitised, seemingly conservative Elvis Presley who came home from Europe was a more licentious man than the boy who had left. His familiarity with pills, especially uppers, had become an obsession, and he talked of buying his own pharmacy for a steady supply. A series of Elvis movies, records and concerts now began coming out one after another. The films included G.I. Blues and Flaming Star in 1960, Wild in the Country and Blue Hawaii in 1961, and Follow That Dream, Kid Galahad and Girls, Girls, Girls in 1962. Soon after Priscilla joined Elvis in Memphis in early 1963, a living arrangement sanctioned by her stepfather, an Air Force captain, the teenager began learning the drug protocol that allowed her to participate in Elvis's night-for-day world. She was not alone in noticing that his behaviour, fueled by a steady stream of pills, was becoming erratic. His temper erupted, and one night he broke down, saying he felt boxed in by his lightweight movies, derisively calling them travelogues for their quasi-exotic locales. Rubbed thinner with every picture, he began suffering nosebleeds on the set from anxiety. In recording sessions, he could barely hide his discomfort at the bland pop songs he was being given, like There's No Room to Rumba in a Sports Car and Petunia, the Gardener's Daughter. Elvis was especially embarrassed to be making mediocre films in Hollywood, while the Beatles, who visited him in August 1965, were capturing American pop culture. The constant frustrations took their toll on Elvis. By the 1970s, even after he'd married Priscilla and had his daughter Lisa Marie, his drug regimen for road tours was so specific that Dr Nick prescribed it in six stages. The drugs included testosterone, amphetamines, dilaudid, dexedrine and demerol, as well as quaalude and amital, hypnotic sleeping medications. The public believed that Elvis was simply ill. By 1975, his physical problems included blood clots, hypoglycemia and an enlarged heart. His liver was more than twice the normal size. His colon distended. His weight on a diet of junk food and downers had zoomed from 80 kilos to 111 kilos in three years, 
something he tried to camouflage with darker jumpsuits and an elastic corset. Elton John, visiting Elvis once, saw the situation clearly. He had dozens of people around him, supposedly looking after him, the musician said, but he already seemed like a corpse. Earlier in his career, Elvis had confessed to his friend Larry Geller that he felt chosen but didn't know why. I've always felt this unseen hand guiding my life since I was a little boy, he told Geller. Why was I plucked out of all the millions of lives to be Elvis? There has to be a reason. Geller had tried to help Presley in his quest to find the divinity within, sharing books and spiritual advice. At one point, Elvis told his friend that he wanted to quit show business and do something important with his life. In fact, Larry, Elvis said, I want you to find me a monastery. Thinking fast, Geller acknowledged the depth of Elvis's feelings, but said he could use them to make a difference in his films and records. You've got the greatest career in the history of show business, Geller told him. You are the legend of them all. You are Elvis. Geller's words found their target. He got that gorgeous grin on his face and he said, Well, to tell you the truth, I can't imagine Priscilla next to me in some monastery raking leaves. Years later, when Elvis desperately needed rest, his divorce from Priscilla seemed to weaken his resolve and usher in a new round of drug use, friends said. Gellis suggested foods and vitamins to strengthen Elvis's immune system. In March 1977, Elvis vowed to take time off and restore his well-being. He pledged other changes in his life as well. He was adamant about firing the colonel, said Geller, recalling that Elvis told him, Larry, I promise you, this is what I'm going to do. He would see to it, he said, by the end of the summer. But the chance to break free never came. After Elvis's death, the colonel went on managing Presley's memory for a while, staging a fan festival, Always Elvis, in September 1978 at the Las Vegas Hilton where he, Vernon and Priscilla dedicated a life-size bronze statue of the star in the foyer. But with Vernon Presley's death in June 1979, the colonel would be sidelined. After a series of lawsuits and settlements, Priscilla Presley, acting on behalf of Lisa Marie, Elvis's primary beneficiary, put together an impressive board of directors to maximise income from one of the most famous names on the planet. Graceland would eventually take in some $23 million in annual admissions alone, with sales of all things Elvis topping $57 million a year by 2002, according to Forbes magazine. Christopher Hutchins, the British journalist, interviewed Parker in 1993, four years before the wily old manager passed away. Wasn't Elvis the son the colonel never had, Hutchins probed? I have to be honest, Parker replied. I never looked on him as a son, but he was the success I always wanted. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price. Ricky Price.